Well, hello. Uh, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so in this episode, I am going to start uh, what will probably be a four-part uh, series looking at uh, At the Mountains of Madness. At the Mountains of Madness was uh, Lovecraft's longest published tale. I, I think uh, Case of Charles Dexter Ward is a little bit longer. Maybe Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath is a little bit shorter, actually. But uh, At the Mountains of Madness is the longest thing he published during his lifetime. Uh, it was written in... Uh, March 1931, which is why we're looking at it now, right after Whisper in Darkness. It was the next tale he conceived right after Whisper in Darkness. However, it wasn't published until 1936. He couldn't uh, get it published in Weird Tales. And he finally got it published in in Astounding Stories in a two-part, in, in two parts, February 1936 and then March 1936. Um Oh, three installments, sorry. And then April 1936, so in three installments. So it was published serially like a, like a short novel, uh, which which essentially it is. This, I think, we can talk about as a novel, um, not just a story, although it often appears in anthologies. It's not a very long uh, novel. Maybe a novella, whatever. Short novel, I'm not sure. All the word count works. Uh, and describing things are novelettas, novellas, novels. Um, that's, that's kind of for weird, uh, uh, magazine fiction nerds, I guess. Um, you know, so whatever story novel, um, anyways, uh, so I talked about in the last episode, Whisper in Darkness, or the, my third part of my look at the Whisper in Darkness that I think at the moment of madness kind of works as a reverse copy of Whisper in Darkness. Whisper in Darkness starts with about, starts about folklore. Uh, our main character, Wilmarth, is a folklorist, a literature person. It's about stories, and it becomes like a science fiction tale, right? And it becomes much more intricate about science by the end of the story. And at the Mountains of Madness, we start with science. We start with, uh, you know, an, an expedition to the Antarctic, uh, given in great detail, a lot of scientific intricacy is given in it, and that's why, you know, even though this is a long tale, a lot of it, the story, especially in the first, you know, quarter or first third of this, the story, is very, very technical, um, and maybe not particularly, uh, you know, thematically as relevant as as it could be. It's it's one of his more wordy tales, um, but a lot of this is is scientific nuance. Um, and then we get to the dissection of the elder things, and it's all told kind of secondhand through these radio reports uh, given from the secondary base on Antarctica to the to the main base on Antarctica. So we hear about the dissection of the of the elder things, but even that is given in very very technical uh, language, very scientific terms, because our characters are all scientists, right, or students, and it makes sense that you know they are going to. Um, you know, approach these phenomenon, right? These mountains in Antarctica, this lost civilization, these creatures, these new discoveries of, of, of new species. Uh, they're going to approach us with the same kind of scientific uh, method that they would, what they went there for, which was core samples, right? You know, pretty common reason people might go to the Arctic is for these core samples, right? To, to see, you know, test atmosphere in the deep past or geology, Right. Um, but in, in the second half of the story, it becomes then really 
we're to folklore. We're talking about the civilization of the elder things and their culture and their history um, and the deeper mythos of all that. So now where the, what they have in common, of course, these two stories really do go together uh, along with the mound and the shadow of time. And then they're both really exploring civilizations that have been around for a long time. Right. Um, you know, that's it's hinted at in some other stories like the nameless city. Maybe this one compares pretty closely with the nameless city in the sense we got someone exploring and then there's a, a you know there's something alive down there in this ancient civilization so it, it kind of is like that story but in his earlier tales it's more about the the effect right and the experience of, of the shock of, of discovering something um, and they're much shorter tales whisper in darkness at the mountains of madness the mound shadow of time are much longer meditations on another civilization that has interacted with us for for centuries, for thousands of years, since before humans have been on this planet, right? Predating us. Um, and and that's very much in common with the, with the Whisper in Darkness. So both of these tales together do form, a, I think, a bridge to, you know, and by this point, when we're done with that, the most matters, there's not many stories left that, that Lovecraft wrote, but definitely this is the, the moment where he really has his own distinctive approach and style and mythology are really coming together um, like the whispering darkness too and i think he does it better in this story he connects the other uh some of the themes in his other stories to this broader cosmos you know like the necronomicon or the cthulhu story you know they're name dropped in at the whispering uh the whispering darkness but at the mountains of madness it's much more well integrated into the the narrative of the story we're given we were shown um how these elder things coexisted with these other creatures like the migos show up here and the cthulhu stuff and even the some of maybe we get hints of some of the stuff um in that are explored in at the shadow over innsmouth right with the deep ones that there's all these things that have existed on the earth and in the cosmos around earth for for centuries right I think it's in this story where it's established that Cthulhu, for instance, comes from space, that he's not just a, a long-dwelling kind of sea god that's, that's existed for millennia under the sea, that he's actually from space. It, it might have been mentioned in The Call of Cthulhu, too, but it's not explored. Uh, here, it's, it's kind of integrated into, into the story. Um, so what else to say about this in, in way of introduction? Um, so I think another important thing here, and I guess this is in The Whisper in Darkness, too, but I didn't really get into it maybe I should have, is the slave master narrative. Um, basically, like it's, I think I, I didn't get into it because I'm thinking more about the mound as a, as a buildup of this theme because uh, both the, these stories deal with slavery and mind control and, and, and institutional slavery. And, and this one deals a little bit more with resistance to slavery. That's why I, I think it, it works better, kind of like uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward is kind of a metaphor for Atlantic history in a way where you have a slave race being forced to build a civilization, right? And, and of course, in the Atlantic history, it's you have slaves uh, being forced to build a civilization. This, in this case, this Anglo-American or Euro-American Euro empires was built on the back of slaves. Um, in, in a polyglot international population of slaves. Native Americans, uh, victims of genocide and slavery, and of course... Imported Africans, uh, the European working class, also 
quasi-enslaved through different institutions, uh, you know, built America, right? And here we have the Shagoths building the civilization of the Elder Things. And I know a lot's been said about, you know, does Lovecraft kind of side with the Shagoths? Does he side with Elder Things? You know, it, it seemed on first glance he's the kind of person who would side with the Elder Things because they're more like him. Uh, they're more civilized, right? Um, but... You know, we can side with the Shoggoths, right? And we can read Lovecraft in different ways. You know, the texts belong to us now. They're they're literally public domain, but even if they're not, you know, I, I do believe the reader has certain rights to to reinterpret and reimagine these things, and, and people are doing that now, which is, which I think is great. So anyways, it's, it's a common story we go to and we want to think about his kind of views on slavery um, and even race, because he is kind of playing with race uh, in this story as well. Um, anything else? I Yeah, like it's like most Lovecraft stories, it's not scary. I, uh, like I don't feel really creeped out by these. You know, some of his earlier st- stories, I think, do are scarier in the sense they do build that effect. They're a little bit creepier. These stories like Whisper in Darkness, Not the Mons of Madness, aren't scary. They're just fascinating uh, in their kind of the richness of the world he's building, right? Uh, so, anyhow, anyhow, let me let me uh, say a little bit about the first three chapters. You know, it's they're long. At least chapter two is really long. Uh, it's longer than a lot of his you know standalone stories. Altogether, there's 12 chapters, so I'll break this up into four episodes, looking at three chapters in each episode. Um, but I'll probably have the least to say about this one, be- these first three, because they're really more setting up this expedition, and a lot of it's about the science of, of it. Um, thematically, there's not much to say, actually. Um, although, I do want to get at this issue of like exploration, right? Because... It is a tale of exploration, and it's not the only one that Lovecraft wrote. I think Shadow of Time is very much about exploration, both humans exploring things, but then the Ithians Ithians are explorers, right? The Mound, as we'll see, is a tale of exploration. The Nameless City, um, you know, in a way, Herbert West Reanimator, The Whisper in Darkness... Dream Quest of Anon Kadath, these are stories of explorers, right? So I think that's another way that the sea and Atlantic history sort of connect to tales like this is because they're all about kind of seeking out something and, and searching for something, um, and which is the opposite of what Lovecraft often does in his works, which is forget, right? He wants us to forget. He wants us to, he warns us. There's a warning to forget. And it's in this story too, right? The whole reason you know, this text exists in, in world is because our narrator, Dyer, uh, his name is William Dyer, as, a, as told in a later story. We meet him again in Shadow Out of Time. Um, you know, he's, he's a geologist, and he's saying, like, he's like the head of this expedition uh, going to Antarctica. And after all these things happen, he wrote, writes his reports. It gets in the newspapers. It's, it's fairly well known that th- there's something here, but this piques people's curiosity. And they're like, well, we got to get down there and do our own exploration of it. And Dyer's saying, no, you don't want to do that. And that's why. It's better to leave this to rest. Just forget about it. Close this particular door. Um, slam it shut. Never go back to these mountains of madness uh, because it won't be good. <laughs> 
that's his warning. So there's that, but but also, you know, much of the story itself is the exploration, is the the adventure, the the discovery of something new, right? Um, and I, you can't stop thinking about, I think, Lovecraft's, you know, my meditation on on science that he gives in the first part of the Call of Cthulhu. It's like science is making all these new discoveries, and, and that's pretty freaky. <laughs> and maybe we shouldn't, or maybe we should rethink this because if we realize who we are, what are how insignificant we are, we may not be able to recover from that. Right. We may not be able to find our place anymore. Right. And we talked about this with the letters, too. From the letters, he has his answer for this. His answer seems to be culture. Civilization is at least gives us kind of a boat in this cosmic ocean that we can kind of pretend to exist in. But, you know, that that only will take us so far. And if we start looking out of the window of that boat and really studying what's out there, you know, the boat's going to be not going to help us anymore it's it's we have to have kind of a an ignorance to 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 survive but uh nevertheless we have exploration and and i think it's important to note that for all that lovecraft writes about forgetting he also is always writing about discovery scientific uh even whisper in darkness is all about you know curiosity and where curiosity leads us so if we can reread against the grain you know, like issues of race in in Lovecraft, which I think we can do and should do, we can read against the grain this forgetting stuff and say, yeah, he might conclude, you know, like he does at the end of Case of Charles Dexter Ward, it's best to hide all this. But but you still have the curiosity is so thematically present in in so many of this, the tales, and this one especially, right? If you have to say, let's think about exploration in Lovecraft, everyone will think of this story first, right? Because it's the most consciously on the surface about exploration. In this case, exploring a new a new continent, right? Will Marth in Whisper and Darkness may had a chance to explore. He was offered an opportunity to explore Ugoth and and the cosmos, and he turns it down, right? So, anyways, the first three chapters. Let's just get into these first three chapters and and see what we have to say about what, what's here. Um, well, we start out, we're told right away um, about the warning. We're told why he's writing this, and it's basically because other people are trying to go to Antarctica. Quote, I am forced into speech because men of science have refused to follow my advice without knowing why. It is altogether against my will that I tell my reasons for opposing the contemplated invasion of the Antarctic with its vast fossil hunt and its wholesale boring and melting of the ancient ice cap. And I'm the more reluctant because my warning may be in vain. Doubtless, doubt, doubt of the real facts as I might reveal them, it's inevitable, yet what I suppressed, what will seem extravagant and incredible, there would be nothing left. Sorry, if I suppress what will seem extravagant and incredible, there'll be nothing left. He says, you know, we have this evidence, um, but some of it will be doubted, but only by writing this account can I be as convincing as possible and warning people against going to these quote-unquote mountains of madness. The term mountains of madness shows up right away in the story um, within the first paragraphs, right? Um, So, uh, yeah, then we're getting the description of basically this expedition. So uh, Miskatonic University is is sponsoring this scientific expedition to Antarctica to dig up core samples. To study kind of ancient geology, which 
is such an important field in modern science. I, I think, you know, Darwin doesn't exist without geology in a way. Um, you know, because before modern geology, before we started saying, no, the Earth's not thousands, it's not even a matter of, is it five, six, seven, ten thousand years? You know, it, it's not just about biblical time. It's like even taking out the Bible, you know, people didn't know how old the Earth was, right? And when they started finding out that, oh, the Earth is actually like millions of years old, you know, billions of years old, you know, I guess it wasn't until the 20th century we had the clear, you know, five billion or whatever for the age of the Earth. But, you know, the, you know, even saying millions of years, right, was, you know, was disruptive to people's perceptions about their place in the universe. It's all kind of what Lovecraft's getting at. We may think of the new physics and quantum mechanics and relativity as really the shocking stuff. Um, but this was pretty shocking too, right? And, and it allows Darwin and other evolutionary thinkers to say, okay, now we can rethink biology because, you know, we're not talking about generations. We're talking about, you know, change happens over thousands of generations, right? Or tens of thousands of generations, millions of years for a change to take place. So, yeah, I know we can observe change in species in labs and fruit flies and stuff like that. But when you look at the fossil record, you're not looking at something, a record of thousands of years, right? Or, or you know, that's kind of what Jefferson dealt with when he was looking at finding shells in, you know, in hillsides in Virginia. You know, he's trying to explain it. Well, you got the flood, you got the Bible, you got, you know, you can reject that, but still you have to explain how the stuff got there. It makes more sense once you add, you know, we're talking about millions of years, right, uh, for this stuff to exist. Um, so geology is really important, I think, to, to the changing perspective of people. And the, the very thing Lovecraft is sort of getting at and his perspective on science. So it's not surprising to me that he chooses the geologist to be the main character. Um, so anyways, uh, back to the story. He's able to go. There's this brand new drill invented by another faculty in... Um, This Padori drill. I'm a little unsure about this. Uh, this is maybe due to Leslie Klinger's um, notes, because it seems he's a professor at Miskatonic University, right? But it, it sounds like this might be an actual kind of maybe it's a maybe it's a a rip on an actual invention of, of new style drills. So I think these kind of drills have been sort of developed to allow us to dig in these do these core samples and dig deep into the earth and, and pull out. This. So we can study ancient atmosphere, right? We can you can go into like these air bubbles in the in the ice and extract, you know, know how much carbon there was in the atmosphere, you know, millions of years ago or whatever, or of other trace elements. Um. Anyways, this allows them to to this is basically the justification for this expedition, right? To learn more about the ancient Earth, uh, and we get a lot of details about the supplies for the expedition, their, you know, how many airplanes they have how large the party is. There's like, you know, over 20 people on this expedition, including sailors and workers. And many of them are pilots or trained as pilots. And so they have, a, they have four planes. I, th I think it's four. Yeah, they have four large planes, which they can use to travel around Antarctica. They are they're all supplied for a whole summer. That's the goal. They, they want to do all this work in a Antarctic summer. So that setting is really kind of interesting, too, because during the Antarctic summer, you don't have basically it's light all, t all the time. 
right? Not super, not particularly warm, being the you know the the latitude they're on, but it's 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 going to be light all the time. So that's part of the effect of the story. I think this would be really fun to adapt. I mean, it's actually a shame that Guillermo del Toro never you know really got this made. You know, I don't know how well Lovecraft adaptations work out. It's kind of a mixed bag, I think. But you know, this I think would be just visually kind of a really cool uh, story to tell, uh, given the the time of year. Uh, and you can kind of explore this place that not many people think about that much, Antarctica. Um, of course, the geography here is all fictionalized. It's just Lovecraft imagining these massive mountains, right, taller than Mount Everest, and a whole civilization that's survived down here for millions of years, right? But anyways, back to the supply of this. Um, yeah, but my point is Lovecraft goes on for like 10 pages about the, the plan, the supplying, the, the equipment, the personnel, the different professors that have, that they have, when they leave Arkham, how long it takes them to travel to South Pacific, the stops they make on the way for supplies, the latitude-longitude lines. Um, it's all quite detailed and um, precise, but there are hints here of, of oddity, of, of weirdness to it, right? But mostly it's not. I mean, mostly it's pretty straight. But there are a few hints. Uh, the introduction of the story itself is saying, oh, this is something freaky is going to happen. You know, I'm going to warn you about it. But there's also hints that there's just something off about the place they're going. It's kind of like that travel into Vermont where you start to feel, wow, this is it's not just a normal trip into the woods. We're going to someplace bizarre. Um, and, and I love this. And a lot of it's the effect just comes from the, the climate and the, the atmosphere and the geography of the place. Um, obviously, without, it goes without saying that this is maybe his, one of his more worldly tales and that he does set it consciously, you know, outside of New England. Even Call of Cthulhu, which is very global, you know, we get snapshots of the rest of the world through other sources, not through the narrator, you know, doing that much traveling. Anyways, here's what we get. The last lap of the voyage was vivid and fancy-stirring, great barren peaks of mystery looming up constantly against the west as the low northern sun of noon or the still lower horizon grazing southern sun of midnight poured its hazy reddish rays over the white snow, bluish ice, and water lanes and black bits of exposed granite slope. Through the desolate summits swept ranging intermittent gusts of the terrible Antarctic wind whose cadences sometimes held vague suggestions of a wild and half-sentient musical piping with notes extending over a wide range, and for which for some subconscious mnemonic reason seemed to be disquieting and even dimly terrible. Something about the scene reminded me of the strange and disturbing Asian paintings of Nicholas uh, Rorick and the still stranger and more disturbing descriptions of the evilly fabled plateaus of Lang, which occur in the dreaded Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul al-Hazared. I, rather sorry later on, that I ever looked into that monstrous book in the college library. So it's important to note, he goes to the Necronomicon after this. He doesn't start there. So it makes sense. It doesn't make much sense that Dyer would have, you know, been reading the Necronomicon casually while a professor at Miskatonic teaching geology. Later on, he looks into it. So it's funny that it seems everyone reads this book. 
even though I'm supposed to be under lock and key. But it makes sense that Dyer kind of sought it out after what he experienced, him and Danforth. We're introduced to Danforth here, too. He's like the second main character in the story. There's a whole team of people, but most of them are pretty irrelevant to the story. Um, we also get the, uh, a little bit here about uh, uh, Arthur Gordon Pym, Poe's uh, short novel, also about explorations of the Antarctic. Kind of works, you know, you can see definitely Lovecraft exploring similar themes as, as that, that tale. In fact, it's mentioned directly by Lovecraft. Um, so you get this kind of, the, the uncertainty, the, the oddity of this different world is, I guess, where the thematic connection is. Um, so, yeah, um, that covers most of what's going on in, in, in chapter one, I guess. Um, there's a little bit here about the communication with the outside world, um, how this expedition is communicating and sending reports out to the press. So there's an awareness of what's going on. It's like an important, there's a lot of money. You can tell there's a lot of money in this expedition. So there's a lot of public interest in it back in Arkham and in the United States more broadly, maybe the world broadly among geologists and scientists and the fate of this expedition. So it's not unknown to the rest of the world what's going on. Um, so if there's a tension in this early part of the story, you know, it's between our Dyer, who's pursuing a little bit more conservative. And that conservatism is really on display, I think, in this first chapter, because there's so much about the, the supplies and the planning and what they're trying to do. And they're even talking about if they have to winter on the ship uh, until the next Antarctic um, summer. You know, so they might have to wait out a whole six months or something, but probably more than that. Right. I'm guessing the Antarctic winter would be fairly long. Um yeah, they said they're trying to complete their work by March. But the tension is between Dyer and Lake. So Lake's another leader of the expedition, and he wants to kind of uh, go a little bit more quickly and deeper into the Antarctic. Um, now, the reason he wants to do this is he has, like, different agendas. So chapter one ends with this uh, worry about Lake's uh, push. Um, quote, it had seemed he pondered a great deal and with alarmingly radical daring over that triangular striated marking on the slate, reading into it certain contradictions in nature and geological periods, which whetted his curiosity to the utmost and made him avid to sink more borings and blastings in the west-stretching west formation to which the exhumed fragments evidently belong. He was strangely convinced that the markings was the print of some bulky, unknown, or radically unclassifiable organism of considerably advanced evolution, Notwithstanding that the rock which bore it was of so vastly ancient a date, Cambrian, if not actually pre-Cambrian, as to preclude the possible probable existence of all but a uh, existence not only of highly evolved life, but of any life above the unicellular or at the most the trilobite stage. These fragments with their odd markings must have been 500 million to a thousand million years old. End quote. So basically, Lake's seen something in some of the borings that's like, oh, I think that's life. And it doesn't fit our understanding of evolution on this planet. So we need to investigate this a little bit more. So he's the more aggressive one wanting to pursue this. Now, chapter two is, is quite a long chapter. And it's, it's, it's kind of cleverly put together because basically what happens is Lake goes with much of 
of the crew, like half of the, the crew, set up a nether base camp deeper in the Antarctic and to do this, to investigate basically biology. Now, this chapter is really about the, the victory of curiosity over, over restraint. As much of our tale here is told from Lake's point of view, even though, you know, we're just with camp with Dyer. Dyer stays behind with, with a bunch of others. Uh, but through radio reports and messages between the two camps, we get all the details of what they discover. And the first thing that we're told about, and they, they bring like planes over you know, to fly to the secondary base camp deeper into the Antarctic. Um, the first thing we find are these, these mountains, right? These huge mountains, larger than Mount Everest, as they're described. And we get the awe. Lake reports have this awe. For instance, you can't imagine anything like this. Highest peaks must get over 35,000 feet. Everest out of the running. Atwood to work out height with theodite while Carol and I go up. Probably wrong about the cones, for formations look stratified. Probably, possibly pre-Cambrian slate without a strata mixed in. Queer skyline effects, end quote. So you get this mixture of awe, but also scientific precision throughout this, which I think is inherent in science. Science is uh, curious people, you know, exploring things with a certain kind of academic rigor. Uh, but with, if you don't have that curiosity and that kind of, uh, desire, you don't have science, right? It's not boring people doing boring stuff. It's it's supposed to be, you know, exciting. I think that's a big part. I think wonder and curiosity is a big part of what made the scientific revolution happen in the first place. And there's a continuing to be a major component of science. It can go too far, I guess, if you, if it gets you into bad results and makes you a little cuckoo. But um, but by and large, it's necessary, right? And Lake has it. Lake certainly has it. Um, so he gets this report of this of, of these large mountains and their and their kind of otherworldliness to them. Of course, this is going to be the the gateway into a whole other civilization eventually. Although that's not known, he's looking for old life, and he eventually finds it. Before too long, he he sends reports of finding fossils of. Was it cephalopods, corals, you know, and other things, sponges, marine vertebrate bones, the suggestion being that this was all underwater at one point, right? Which is, of course, something that people discover all the time, fossils of plant life on, on land, right? Miles from the ocean, uh, which makes sense once you understand uh, continental drift, of course. Now, after this, we're before he gets to the big discovery, he's... Dyer reminds his readers, the readers of At the Mountains of Madness, that the, I'm writing this to stop people from pushing this any farther, right? Yes, there seems to be some weird life here, but don't go there, right? So he reminds again, the same thing he says on the first page of the story, you know, he brings it up again, don't go there. So, but anyways, the Lake's reports get more and more interesting as they go on as he discovers more and he starts to think more about what he's finding start hypothesizing a little bit more he starts even thinking about maybe there are life cycles on the earth he even mentioned the necronomicon as maybe a, a a key to understanding this this history he seems to be revealing through these uh, samples he's taking these core samples he's taking um in the antarctic in this second in this second camp so anyways, finally, though, they find the big, they find the big discovery, which uh, is described 
what, maybe halfway through chapter two, um, they dig up this creature, which this is, what I think, what brings him to bring up the Necronomicon. He says, maybe this thing is a bit like the Necronomicon. Um, yeah, here it is. Important discovery. Orphoret and Watkins working underground at 945 with light found monstrous barrel-shaped fossil of wholly unknown nature, probably vegetable unless overgrown specimen of unknown marine raetia. Tissues evidently preserved by mineral stones. Tough as leather, but silently flexible, retained in place. Marks of broken off parts at ends and around sides. Six feet end to end, 3.5 feet central diameter, you know, on and on. He describes this, this, you know, six foot tall like specimen right and for several pages he, he describes in a lot of detail what this thing is right it's not an unknowable unnameable right it's 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 he can kind of explore it with scientific precision here um you know or, orifices at the tips of their of reddish tubes um you know he describes it as kind of the the, the flesh the, the material is more like vegetable than it is like or you know carbon-based like mammalian flesh you know that it seems to have weird mouths it's totally alien um to them. well it turns out maybe not so alien maybe you know been here longer than humans anyways but um now there's lake here is also familiar with wilmarth who is of course a colleague right at miskatonic university so he says you know wilmarth talked about things like this in his weird rants about vermont and of course he's talking about the the, what, what's called like the outer ones, you know, which are different than the elder things, or the Migo and the elder things, just different features, but all part of this kind of same cosmic history. Cthulhu called is mentioned here too. Um, so it's great stuff. And they, they begin to dissect it and start to reveal this distinct biology of, of the elder things. It's Lake who gives them the name elder things. I think drawing this from actually the Necronomicon. Um, You know, drawing off mythology. So again, like Whisper in Darkness starts with mythology, goes into science. This one starts with science and veers off into mythology by by this point where we have Lake, you know, pondering Wilmarth's discoveries and you know ancient mythology and old Grimones and things like the Necronomicon. Um, now Dyer's a bit freaked out by this because he's kind of worried news is going to get out. Um, about this and that's going to kind of change the nature of this expedition and maybe threaten what they're really after but he acknowledges that if this is all true uh, which it appears to be this is a big find um, so that's chapter two chapter two is really long it's got a lot of long scientific discussions um, and it's it's something really new it even goes beyond what we saw in whisper and darkness and just detail of of what we're actually dealing with here so then we get to chapter three um, in chapter three is it's a little bit shorter because um, it basically gets us to uh, the rest of the story in a way. Um, what happens is essentially they lose contact with the with the with the lakes camp, um, and then they got to say like, what do we do about this? Right? It's it's not it's it's it was not likely that they like all their four all their plans would break down. It's not likely that all their radios would break down and there'd be no way because they're not that far away. It's not impossible for them to, you know, send a message back by some other means. 
even if communications broke down. So something really is going on here, uh, serious, if they lose all contact with them. Right. So they have to go. So so it's who all goes. It's it's Dyer goes. Dan Danforth. Um, yeah, I think most of the rest of the group move go forward and 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 travel to Lakes Camp to check on them, right? To check on them, and they have the same experience that Lakes Party must have had, where they. You know, experience this awe, this cosmic horror, this revelation of 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 what is there. Quote: uh, The sailor Larson was first to spy the jagged line of witch-like cones and pinnacles ahead, and his shout sent everyone to the windows of the great cabin plane. Despite our speed, they were slow in gaining prominence. Hence, we knew that they must be infinitely far off, invisible only because of their abnormal height. Little by little, however, they rose grimly into the western sky, allowing us to distinguish various. Bare, bleak, blackish summits, and to catch the curious seat of fancy which they inspired, as seen in the reddish Antarctic light against the provocative background of iridescent ice dust clouds. And the whole spectacle there was persistent, pervasive hints of stupendous secrecy and potential revelation. End quote. You know, a great summation of this whole story in a way. Um, now, we also get the same reflection on this Rorick's paintings. I don't really know who this guy Rorick is, but the same scenery is being compared to these paintings by Rorick. Um, this the the mountain range, the the mystery of it, the outer, the uneasiness that our characters feel and experience in that. Um, Dyer reflects a little bit, a little bit more on Wilmarth and his discovery and the Necronomicon, and and significantly the Central Asiatic theory of human origins. Right, so Long Leng. The Plateau of Lang, kind of Tibet, I guess. Um, it's significant in this time because this is before out of Africa two theory of human origins was well established, right? You still had people searching for human origins in Central Asia. There were a series of expeditions, the Central Asiatic expeditions, you know, that went to China and went to Mongolia looking for human origins. They found dinosaurs. This is like Roy Chapman Andrews, right? His his expedition and, and others were searching for human origins in Central Asia. And they found other stuff, but they didn't find human origins. Um, but, you know, at Lovecraft's time, that's still a dominant theory. So, you know, quote, mythologists have placed Lang in Central Asia, but the racial memory of men or of predecessors is long. And it may well be that certain tales have come down from the lands and mountains and temples of horror earlier than Asia and earlier than any human world we know. It's hinting now at this deeper human memory all the way back to human origins, right? Which is still somewhere in Central Asia. Um, we also get a wonderful uh, section about these kind of Ar Antarctic mirages, which I think is a real phenomenon. Um, Klinger in his notes to the story talks about, you know, other explorers to the Antarctic who talked about these Antarctic mirages. Um, and of course, mirages being kind of the reflection of the, of the sky on the surface. And, you know, you see it on blacktop, I guess you see it on water, and, and then maybe the Antarctic snows allow this kind of mirage effect, too. Um, and that's kind of a really nice section of the story, too, where we get this growing creepiness of, of, the, uh, of the whole setting because of the mirages. 
Anyways, they finally get to the camp, and what they find are, is dead bodies. They find um, 11 dead bodies and one person, Gendi, missing. So this missing person is going to be the push for Dyer and Danforth to investigate a little bit further, because can't, you can't leave a man behind, right? The dogs were killed. Um, and so the first thing they do is they kind of salvage what they can from the camp, right? But much of what was, you know, talked about is gone, is missing. Um, now, we also get as a, a confessions here about Dyer's own, you know, kind of cover up of what really happened here. Because we start to, he starts to say stuff were out of the, are not in the official reports. Basically, everything in the story from this point on is not public record, right? Which is every, the reason why he's writing this is to reveal this stuff that's not in the public record. Uh, we also get the mention here of Danford's secret. Right, that's kind of a running motif, uh, kind of a foreshadowing is that Danford has a secret, something he's hiding, uh, something he's aware of that's, you know, that will be revealed later on. Um, but the main thing is here, they're covering up something. There's the 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 official report is not true, um, but we see them try to repair the planes, collect what they can, um, and they say this is how this chapter sort of ends. Um, Quote, since our return, we have constantly worked to discourage Antarctic exploration and have kept certain doubts and guesses to ourselves with splendid utility and faithfulness. Even young Danford, with his nervous breakdown, has not flinched or babbled to his doctors. Indeed, I have not said there is one thing he thinks he alone saw, which he will not even tell me, though I think it would help his psychological state if he would consent to do so. It might explain and re re relieve much, though perhaps the thing was no more than a delusional aftermath of earlier shock. That is the impression I gather from those rare, irresponsive moments when he whispers disjointed things to me, things which he repudiates vehemently as soon as he gets a grip on himself again, end quote. So Danforth has gone mad uh, as a result of this, what he discovers. Um, and basically, this is what the public knows. Everything that came before is kind of public record that this late camp was found something, some new biology, uh, although much of it didn't survive, and the party was was killed off in some way. Um, but from this point forward, and I'll start picking up on this in the next episode, really the story then is about what was left out of the official report. Um, so I guess that's all. So even though this is a big chunk of the story, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's like 40 pages almost, but it's, it's all just set up. It's all just setting up uh, what Lovecraft's really interested in, which is the exploration of this civilization, not just this body, Right, even though it's really well done, the the dissection narrative, the r records of what they found and uh, you know what they dissected and what the elder things look like, it's so detailed, going on for pages and pages. But really, what Lovecraft's interested in is this civilization and its history and its place on the Earth, and that's what we're going to get to in future in the next three episodes as we as we dig deeper in the into this this little novel. So I guess that's it. I think there's a lot more I maybe could say about this, but I, I think I exhausted most of what I want to say about it. Um, but if there's anything you would add um, here, let me, let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, that's going to be it for now. So uh, thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time as I look at chapters four through six of At the Mountains of Madness. Well, thanks for listening. Graveyard. Oh, 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 oh